Welcome to another edition of the Best Business Minds. I want to remind everybody to please meet yourself. Uh, we're very excited to have uh, Sandra Spielberg today. But before we introduce Sandra and have a great conversation with her, I would like to interview, introduce our two sponsors, Matt Butler. Hey, Mark. Thanks. Hello, everyone. I spent 25 years in leadership positions in financial services companies, and what I found is the same three things cause all business problems. It's a lack of collaboration, a lack of understanding about how things really work, and limited investment dollars, which unfortunately result in shortcuts and workarounds. So we developed our methodology to eliminate those three problems. We do that by creating a visual image of your process like you've never seen before. And once you have that image, everyone's on the same page as to what the problems really are. And if you can see how your processes are causing your problems, the solutions, and more importantly, the priorities become very easy to see. So if you'd like to solve your business problems, reduce some stress in your organization, and increase your profitability, give us a call. Thank you. Thank you very much, Matt. John Custer? Thank you, Mark. Am I on? <laughs> I'm John Custer III, a partner at the business law firm of Custer & Custer, which provides startups to middle market companies with services including corporations, contracts, shareholder and buy-sell agreements, trust and estates, and non-disclosure agreements. We have substantial experience working with companies from a variety of industries like manufacturing, professional services, software, and various other technology products and services. There's no charge to call us and discuss your issue, and depending on your needs, we can give you a fixed price for the work. Again, I'm John Custer III with Custer & Custer. John, thank you very much. Uh, glad to have you again. Sandra, we're thrilled to have you. Uh, thank what, you. Do you still have the company, uh, Secret Health? Do you still have it? I sold the company and I worked at it until April of this year. Okay, all right. Uh, tell us a little bit about that company. Yes, definitely. So Seeker Health was a patient finding platform. We found patients for clinical trials and for other users for biopharmaceutical companies. And the reason why I started this company was that before starting the company for 15 years, I had been working at biopharmaceutical companies and noticed that this was a huge problem. Uh, companies needed to find patients, they needed to find them fast. And especially for rare diseases, for oncology, there was really a need to find these patients and there weren't really any good mechanisms to do that. Um, and so when at my very last job at Nora Therapeutics, this was a small startup biotech company that decided not to continue to pursue the development of their drug, I was sort of faced with this fork on the road. Should I update my resume and go try to find another job? Or should I start a company that is actually going to fix this problem? And of course, I never even opened the file for my resume. And I went ahead and I started a company. And initially, Seeker Health was a minimum viable service. I was providing online campaigns for clinical trials, and that allowed me to start right away, get a few customers, not really need to raise funds. And those customers then allowed me to continue to build the company and build the software platform that eventually became an end-to-end -end solution to the problem. Congratulations on your success. So yeah. now you've written this book, uh, which I thought was great. I mean, I couldn't put it down. How did you come up, uh, why did you write the book and how'd you come up with the title? Yeah, I have it here in case people haven't seen it. It looks like this. 
New Startup Mindset. So I came up with the title, New Startup Mindset, because really what I wanted to communicate was that a lot of the formulas that are out there for starting a new company don't really work for most founders and certainly don't really work for first-time founders. And a lot of it had to do with mindset, with resetting your mind to believe or think something else. And so in the book, I talk about 10 mindset shifts to create this company, this first company of your dreams. My book is primarily for first-time authors because it tells the story of me going through the first time creating this company, Secret Health. And I wrote it for a couple of reasons. One, I had learned so much during this journey, right? Uh, Lessons that hadn't been shared with me prior to me setting foot on the journey. And then two, I realized through the process of of reflecting on the company that I had done everything differently. I hadn't really followed what I call the startup formula. You know, I hadn't raised funds. I hadn't gotten a co-founder. I didn't go to an incubator. I'm not a programmer, but developed a tech product. And so I thought it was an important voice to add uh, so that people could see that it is possible to do to do a company on your own terms, right? On, in a way that makes sense to you um, and without following a formula that perhaps wasn't even designed for you. That's great. Uh, I, I'm sure you, did you ever aspire to be an entrepreneur even as a kid? Yeah, there were, there were definitely little instances of that. So uh, growing up, my dad had two stores. One was a hardware store, like a mom and pop shop. And the other one was a furniture manufacturing facility. And he would take my brothers and I, I have two brothers, two younger brothers, to these stores. And he would put us to work. And it was, you know, from an early age, it was a bit of exposure as to, you know, what's a customer look like? And what do you do to a customer? And my dad was one of those people that really believed in delighting his customers, right? Uh, And I know you want to talk about the word delight uh, later, but, you know, he really believed in that, that his customers were sort of like, almost like part of an extended family and that his job was to serve them in the best way that he could. And so he imparted that in me. Um, And then, you know, later on, I went through academics, you know, school sort of seemed like a really good way to to achieve or to at least um, sort of like come out of the socioeconomic status that I was put in as an immigrant in the United States. And so I really focused on school. But as you notice in my career, I've gone to smaller and smaller companies until I created my own. And you, uh, you were born in Uruguay? That's right. I was born in Uruguay. And then at around age 12, my father came to visit the United States. His brother lived here and he literally fell in love with the United States. Um, He came back to Uruguay and he began the process for us to immigrate legally, our family of five. And that took five years. And then in 1992, when I was 16, we all immigrated to Brooklyn, New York. And that was probably one of the biggest shocks of my life. Like a foreign uh, country. (laughs) uh, Uruguay is sort of this really nice, placid country where really nothing ever happens ever. And I was in a small school with, you know, 25 people that I had known from the time I was five years old. It was a very small community. And then I come to Brooklyn, New York. I go to this public high school in which my graduating class is 800 people. There's a metal detector to come into the high school. My parents are mostly unemployed the first year that we're here. And it was just one of the most 
um, formative experiences of my life because I saw that I could actually start from zero again. Like I can start from zero and I can make it somewhere. And I think that was an important mindset for the startup world because I had, I had started from zero before. I wasn't really afraid of what that would look like. Oh, I guess being an immigrant is like being a startup uh, when you come here, right? You're learning the market, you're learning how to pitch yourself and have a um, different uh, competitive differentiator. So in your book, uh, you talk about seven myths. What are the seven myths yes. um, of entrepreneurship? So, yeah, so you know, as I was going through this process of starting the company, I noticed that a lot of people were talking to me about things about the company and I said, well, these are not absolutely right. It doesn't actually have to be this way. So the seven myths are, unicorn or nothing. Unless you build a unicorn, then you're a company and you are nothing. And that's a myth because there's tons of companies that do really great work and are not unicorns, right? They're what I call zebras or giraffes or gazelles, and they're doing great work and they're well-fed animals. Uh, myth number two, you are your startup. And I think this is an important myth to dispel early because the identity of the founder sometimes becomes very confounded with the identity of the startup, but it's important to keep them separate because the startup is something that you're working on and it may do great, it may die. Um, and that doesn't mean that you die, right? You just, you had a, 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 you know, a career in, in, in this startup and then you move on to something else. And I think that that's really important to kind of keep those separate. Um, myth three is that you need a co-founder. I didn't uh, start Seeger Health with a co-founder and I did that on purpose because actually I had the opportunity to witness my husband have a co-founder and that seemed a little bit like a monster with two heads and a startup needs to move fast and so I prefer to just be one monster with one head. Um, and so, you know, a co-founder is not necessary. You can be all the founding power than your company needs. Myth four, harder work means bigger success. And, you know, there's a little bit of this myth, you have to work until like two in the morning. And, you know, I've always been a person that really thrives on eight hours of sleep. And one of the things that I realized, it's not, it's not really about harder work, it's about better work. And it's about being very strategic on the items that you put time into. Myth five, I need venture capitalists to, find my, to fund my startup. So I funded my startup with customer revenue. Of course, VC is one of the ways that you can fund your startup, but it's not the only way. And I think for a lot of first-time founders, and especially minority founders, women, you know, my other minorities that are not well represented in the startup ecosystem, it seems very scary to go raise funds from venture capitalists. Like that's not going to be a good investment of time. And I personally really agree with that. And for me, it was a better investment of time to pitch customers. Myth six, I need to be a young white man to be successful as a startup founder. And so no, just because you don't see a lot of people doing, you know, blazing this trail, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be the one to blaze it. So if you are not a white young man, then that's perfectly fine because there's still lots of opportunities for you. And then last one, my startup needs luck. And, you know, this is an interesting question, especially now in the times of COVID-19, right? What I, what I wanted to, with the myth, right, what I wanted to say was that in general, there are some things you control, there are some things you don't control. So the things that you control, then do the best that you can. But there are many, many things that we don't control in a startup. And I think COVID-19 has really shown that to all of us, right? This is really a period of extreme uncertainty. Um, and we don't control everything that will happen uh, to our startup. Do you, do you think women entrepreneurs are still at a disadvantage when raising capital? Uh, I believe
believe so. I mean, that's what the numbers say. I checked the numbers yesterday, actually, and the, the latest that I got was an article from TechCrunch that showed that venture funds go to 2.6, only 2.6% of venture funds go to women. Wow. Uh, yeah, so, and it's moved up a little, but not significantly. So when you think about that, about venture funding being one of the, the one of the fueling aspects to entrepreneurship, then from that perspective, women are at a disadvantage. However, if we forget the formula, we forget the startup formula, and we say, you know, starting a company is about uh, starting something from nothing, is about finding a need and meeting it, is about working with your customers and serving them in the best possible way. I think women are in a great place to do that because um, in general, the women that I have observed are really good at, at getting that done. Do you think a lot of the women started businesses may not have needed venture capital like yours, so that's why there's so little in uh, in in need in particular, because there's a lot of women who are starting fashion uh, businesses. Uh, some of them are program software programs themselves on field. And also, I think women are uh, much more used to budgeting and, and are careful about how they either spend money or take someone else's money. Do you think that impacts that number? Absolutely. I mean, when I think about the framework for companies that are good to raise VC funding for, you know, they're generally companies that have capital intensity, right? They need a lot of capital, right? They're going after a market that is generally very large, like mass looking. And uh, the founder is sort of willing to create this team where he will have several investors, right, working on steering the ship. And so I think those three areas tend to be areas that women uh, sometimes tend to steer away from, right? They might create a business that is more service oriented and need less capital, right? Or they might create a business that's more niche. My business was niche, right? My business was within one in, in uh, industry, one vertical, biopharmaceuticals. Um, it happened to be a very big vertical, but I was thinking that as if I was going to venture capitalists, they're generally looking for solutions that transfer across multiple industries. So yeah, I agree. I agree with that. That part of that has to do with the maybe the businesses that we choose to start. And you said you uh, really didn't want to have a partner and we're not positive about partnerships. Now I've been, as an entrepreneur, I've had partners that were amazing and I had partners that I was carrying them on my back to the point that I just couldn't get wait to get rid of them. What, what turns you off about the idea of bringing on a partner? Because the part, part I liked was that you had somebody to talk to every day. It's like raising kids with somebody else, it's kind of nice to have that partner to do that with. That's right. And, and the, the thing is that in a sense, I had a partner and that was probably my husband, right? Because he had his own business that had started about three years prior to mine. And so I could come home and talk to him. And then I could come home and talk to my children too, eventually about what was going on in the business. So I didn't feel like I needed that sounding board. I had that sounding board and I would be open to having a co-founder, just having witnessed a couple of those relationships. They sort of seem like another marriage that required a lot of communication, a lot of investment. And, and mostly what was problematic for me was the decision making, that it seemed that the decision making was somewhat slowed down by having this partnership. It could be that at the end of the day, it was improved, right? But it seemed like it was slowed down by having two people uh, having to agree on a lot of the, you know, the, the decisions that a business had to make. Do you recall you uh, quote a statistic about 
the success rates of partnerships versus the success rate of an individual just running on their own. Do you remember what that stat was? Yeah, that's in the co-founder section right here. And that is from a study that uh, the University of Pennsylvania did on, on teams that had a solo founder versus teams that did not have a solo founder. And so what I say is research shows that companies started by solo founders survive longer than those started by teams. And in addition, organizations started by solo founders generate more revenue than organizations started by founder pairs. Um, and a lot of it, when you go into that study, it tends to be about this decision making, right? Uh, it also tends to be about how profit gets distributed, that if you only have one person to distribute profit to, you know, the, the venture can actually go longer than if you have two people to feed at the same time. How did you manage to balance the kids uh, with the demand of the startup? You know, you have a spouse, you have kids, you know things can go sideways and, uh, and you're torn, especially I think women feel it more than men because of the maternal instinct. That's what I've read in different studies. So how did you manage to balance this out? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think mostly I balanced it by getting them involved, right? So I didn't want my business to be this thing that they never saw and never participated in. And it was sort of like this imaginary a third child that was taking a lot of my attention away. Instead, I wanted, you know, my husband and my kids to participate in the business. So there were opportunities, right? My son designed the logo, right? That is still being used today for Seeker Health. And, you know, my husband was involved every day as I was talking to him about things that were going on in the business. My daughter was younger, but she would come to the office. She would make me little drawings. You know, I still have a drawing that she made first year anniversary of Seeker Health. So I think one of the ways was to really have them involved so that they saw what was getting built, right? Uh, this wasn't something that was happening sort of behind their backs and they had no input and no sort of no ownership of. Um, and then I think the other way, more practically speaking, was to just have really good support, um, you know, good, good childcare, good, um, you know, good schedules between my husband and I, where we could, you know, attend to the things that were going on with the children. And I want to say that the last thing is to really not be nuts about this after school activities, right? So a lot of families that I see, their kids are involved in seven different things. And we had a limit. Each child gets two things to be involved in after school, you know, hopefully a sport and something else, because that meant that we were limiting how much was on our plate. And you know what, that really worked very well uh, for our kids, you know, to sort of be like, um, the, the amount of things that I am asking you to do are limited. And I mean, at the end of the day, for, for kids, for that relationship, it's really all about unconditional love and really being there for them. And, you know, learning who they are becoming and going along with, with who they are. Was there anything that went wrong you didn't anticipate in terms of family? In terms of family, um, let's see. So, I mean, there were a lot of things going on during this time. You know, my son was in a traveling team, right? During the time that I was building Seeker Health. And that was actually quite challenging because one of the parents had to go with him in the beginning. And then eventually he was able to go on his own. But I think that that put quite a bit of pressure on all of us uh, because literally he had to be traveling almost every week um, to far away cold places. He was on the, on the team for USA Luge, 
uh, the winter sport. And I think out of all the things that I can come up with, that was probably one of the things that put the most pressure on our family because it really felt like we were giving up a lot to sort of like take him and follow him around to all these places that he had to go. So that put a lot of pressure. Um, you know, I started Seeker Health almost very quickly after my father died. And that was also an interesting experience because it sort of felt like I wasn't really grieving the death of my father. I was actually working through it, right? And, and he had been an entrepreneur with very entrepreneurial thoughts. And I almost felt like he was poking me in the back saying, you know, this is your turn to, to make something for this family. And so I always think about, about that, about the fact that, you know, people grieve differently, but I definitely tell you that I grieved the death of my father, my father by building a company. <laughs> and that could be the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, but I'm very aware that that's what was happening. Well, I'm sure he had a huge influence on you as you watched him do his own businesses as, as well. Uh, you tell us that you started, you finance this business essentially through your clients providing it. Had you put away money, like did you know, hey, I'm gonna go start my own business in six months or a year? and start putting cash away because you know it might take a long time until you can actually take salary out until it's profitable. So yeah, how did question. you plan for that? Yeah, great question. So for me, the startup of the company really happened when uh, the company that I was at before, Nora Therapeutics, decided to go out of business, right, and not continue to pursue the treatment that they were pursuing. So thankfully, they gave us four months of severance, right? So initially, that was my beginning horizon. For four months, I am getting paid with benefits by the, my previous employer to go explore this idea. And then aside from that, I was definitely willing to give myself a little bit more time, maybe another two months to see if I can at some point get enough revenue, right, to, to replace the salary that I was just given. Uh, in those four months, I was able to get three customers to pay for the initial minimum viable service. And with those three customers, I was already replacing my salary. So this looked like it was going to work, right? So even within the four months when I was still getting benefits from the previous employer, this worked. Now, I call this a very lucky situation, like very protected from the bottom, right? In terms of I'm getting paid by my previous employer for, you know, severance for laying the, the entire workforce off and I'm using that as my salary to maintain for building a company during that time. If I hadn't done that, of course, we had some savings, but I think I would have been a little bit more reluctant to take the, the leap. It really helped me that I was being paid for four months and I realized that that's a very unusual situation. Um, but, you know, the entire company had been laid off and some people went to get another job, some people took a vacation and I started a company. Smart, very, very smart. Mm -hmm. uh, how long did it take you to get profitable? Did you say four, six months? So four to six months, I was making enough revenue, but very quickly I started using that revenue to develop software, right? The first year we were mildly profitable, um, like still under six digits. And then the second year we were very profitable in the seven digits, right? And so, and then from then on, continued to be uh, profitable in the seven digits. So did you end the up first year, more the first year, did it, did it totally replace your salary? Like there was no gap there. There was really no gap there, but I was using a lot of the funds to feed software development. Um, well, the software development honestly didn't end up costing that much. It cost about $150,000. 
um, which the customers were paying, right? And by the time I developed the software, I had five paying customers. And these five paying customers were providing the revenue that I can then turn around and pay the software developer with. So it's a, it's a very clear case of bootstrapping. But I think the key here of this bootstrap is that I started with a service and then I moved on to develop a platform. And many people advised me against that. They said, you know, companies that are a service, you're either a service company or you're a product company. How can you be a service company that then becomes a product company that doesn't really work? Uh, it's a whole different mindset. And in this case, it worked because this is what was needed to fit the need of our customers. Our customers needed a service, which was a campaign that would promote the clinical trial. And then they also needed a platform to put all that information into and then, you know, share it with the hospitals that were going to enroll these patients. How long did it take you to build the platform? And did it take the same amount of time that the developer said it would take? Or did it take longer? And did Great you question. stay with the same developer throughout the whole process? And what did you learn from that whole pro yes. uh, process of doing it? Great. So in order to get the developer, I conducted a request for proposal process, which was actually important because it really um, helped me to put on paper what I wanted the system to do, right? And I wrote what I wanted the system to do pretty much in plain English, right? Like, you know, patients are gonna come in, the biotech company is gonna log in here, they're going to see the way the trial is progressing, the hospitals are gonna log in here, they're going to see the patient information that was submitted by the patient. So I wrote all that stuff out. And then I send it out to a couple of connections that I had. They were all through connections, right? One was a developer in India. One was a developer in, um, that had done some work for a STEMI competitor. And then another one was a friend of a friend. And, uh, and then I waited for the responses to come back. Pricing was all more or less about the same. And most of them were saying that it was going to take, you know, about four months to develop this platform. So I chose the friend of a friend. Um, he was basically a solo developer that brought in another person to help with the back end of the system. And then these two guys, right, these two men uh, were doing this on the side. So they had full-time jobs and they were working on my platform on the side, which meant that mostly I was meeting with them on Saturdays. Um, but the thing is that even though I wasn't a programmer, I do know how to manage a project. And so we really did stay on this timeline. And we launched the, the first version within the four months that was promised. And then very quickly after, we continued to add more features and got to a version two. Uh, and they stayed on until the company was acquired. When the company was acquired, then my acquirer took the software in-house. Well, no, congratulations on getting a platform actually done and on time and on budget, it sounds like, as well. That's a yes. real rarity. Uh, why are curiosity, humility, and patience important? You write about that in the book. Yeah, I write about that in the book. And that's in the chapter that I call Beginner's Mindset. And, you know, as I was building Seeker Health, I was coming in with 15 years of experience in the biotech company, so in, in biotech companies. And so, you know, that's how of created like this personality inside of me of like, oh, you know, I am kind of like this mature person in my industry. I've had all these experiences. I've had launches under my belt, all these things. And then I go to do this startup and I basically don't know how to do anything. I've never done any of these things before. I never incorporated a company. I never hired every single team member. I never was the, the person that had to pitch every single customer. And so I realized I was actually a beginner 
at everything. And that it was actually an advantage in some ways to be a beginner at everything because a beginner tends to be more patient, tends to be more humble, right? And tends to sort of have this curiosity about like, well, I wonder what is the best way to do this because I've never done it before. If I had done some of these things before, I maybe would have had more of a knee-jerk reaction as to how to do them, but I had never incorporated before. So I had to figure out, well, what's the right corporate structure for this venture, right? I had never hired everybody in the team before. I mean, I hired people, but not the whole team. And so now I had to think through, well, what do I want my team to look like? Like, right? What skills do they need to bring? And so there was a lot more curiosity. And I think that that is really a very important mindset for a startup, right? You're building something from nothing. Um, and as the founder, you have a lot of different hats that you wear in the beginning. So is it a good idea to work for a startup before you go up? Because like, if you work for a really large company, you really don't get a sense of what it's like to be in a startup. And I think the company you work for was like a startup. Yeah, the company that I worked for right before, uh, North Therapeutics, that was a startup. It was eight people. To some extent, it prepared me. And to some extent, it could have never prepared me, right? And so on that question, I'm kind of like halfway one way, halfway the other way. Um, here's the thing. I know that what helped me the most in, my, in getting Seeker Health off the ground was the fact that I had connections in the industry I was going to serve. Right. So if there is a way to develop those connections in some period of time when you also benefit from stable income and benefits, then that's a good time to be at some company that will provide you those connections. Right. That's what benefited me the most. Um, Nora was a startup. It was a very different startup, though. We were developing a drug and developing a drug by default. You know, you need venture capital. It's going to take millions of dollars, you know, five to 10 years to develop this drug. So it didn't really prepare me for what I had to do with Seeker Health, which was more of a technology um, startup. Um, so I think, you know, what I would say is maybe prior to your startup, if you, if, first of all, I, I always say, if you wanna start, start now, because there's no reason waiting for anything else to happen. However, I know that in my life, for example, when my kids were really little, um, it was somewhat, nice to have a stable job that I could show up to and they paid me money and they, they paid my benefits. And, and so there was a place for corporate America in my, in my history, right? And so if there was a place for it, then what I got the most out of was making these connections that then became really important in helping me build the business. Uh, should someone, is there anything in life that prepares you for a startup? Great question. And honestly, what I think probably prepares you most for a startup is having a child. But I am not advocating that you go and have a child <laughs> and then do a startup because that actually doesn't work at all. But when I look back, right, a startup kind of feels like a child. It's sort of like in the beginning, as a founder, you're creating the, the organs of the startup, you know, the things that it needs to function, and then it gets born. And it could be pretty useless in the beginning, and it needs to constant nurturing to continue to become something that is useful and productive and independent. And then at some point, hopefully, you get the opportunity to let, let it go, right? And let it go and, and live a life of its own. So probably a child is the thing that I would say most prepares you for it. But again, I wouldn't advocate to go have one. You know, uh, you touched on this a little bit. And you said there's an advantage to being a beginner. What are some of the advantages? 
Yeah. So um, a beginner has um, a beginner has the ability to say, "Look, I'm a beginner, right?" And so because I'm a beginner, I'm going to be patient with myself. That was really important for me because by default, I'm a pretty quick-paced person and I like to do things quickly. But I noticed, you know what? I have to slow down because. I don't know what I'm doing. And so I have to learn it. I have to explore it. I have to make sure I'm making the right decision. So patience, you know, beginner goes a little slower. Uh, to the humility, the fact of being able to say, after saying so many times prior in my career that, or, you know, being postulated as an expert in something, uh, being able to say, I don't know how to do this. And I'm doing this from, I'm starting from zero. Um, so that humility, I think is really important to, for startup is, is the humility that almost we have to bring to some of the customer interactions to really listen for what they're looking for in the platform. And then the last one that I want to highlight is that the beginner is able to speak to the inner critic, right? And this is um, based on some research that I was able to find, find. We all have this voice inside our head that says, I'm not good enough. I'm not gonna be able to do it. You know, I've never done this before. And it turns out that the beginner, that beginner part of us can talk to this inner critic part of us in a better way. And in the book, I, I write a sample letter that you could write to your own inner critic, basically saying, I am a beginner. I want to do this, please give me a chance. And so what's, that's what the beginner can do. The expert can't quite do it because the expert has already a lot of these capabilities and a lot of this like ego already constructed. But a beginner can say, inner voice, inner critic, please give me some silence. I'm going to take a year to see how this turns out. How did you manage, and you talk about this in the book, how do you relax and clear your head? Yes, very important. And actually just today, uh, there's an article that I wrote that's going around about burnout. Um, I, find, I find protecting the vessel of creation to be the most important thing that you do for your startup, right? Because without this body, without my mind, I can't really show up to produce my best work. So I think it, it all depends for different people. The way that I do it, the things that work for me is eight hours of sleep a night, right? So I have to protect that some, somehow. And it's become increasingly difficult for me because I have teenagers, right? That like to go to sleep very late and now I'm in summer vacation, but I have to protect that time and I have to get eight hours of sleep. So it starts with that. It continues on with, you know, um, for me, I like meditation, right? Meditation is a way to focus the mind and to really see what the contents are in there. And so I like meditation a lot. I live in Northern California, which is a little bit hippie out here. So I used to go during the creation of Seeker Health, I used to go to something called ecstatic dance. An ecstatic dance is movement meditation, right? And so you dance to music, but the whole purpose of the journey is to really go inward. Um, and so because a startup ends up being a very outward process, we're trying to get customers, we're keeping in touch with our competitors, we're putting a product out there. It's a very outward uh, type of process. I think it's very important to balance that out with inward, right? With going inside. What's happening inside my body? What's happening inside my body, my, my mind? And so I found that that's really a good balance. Aside from that, I was really well supported by having a lot of friends I can call, especially if I was having a bad day. You know, I knew I could call my brothers. I could call my mom. I could call my friend Kim. I could call, you know, my husband, of course. I could call other people that were aware of what I was going through. And those close others become also really important important to have to support this effort. How did you handle a bad day? How did I handle a bad day? So generally, first of all, <laughs> 
first of all, I was get I would get really frustrated because I'm kind of like that type of person that gets like really frustrated. And then I would get really tense. And then I would hopefully at some point become aware of the fact that I am really tense and very stressed out. Uh, usually taking a walk was one of the best things. And I think there's actually been some studies that show that when you do this thing of like the two parts of your body are moving, it really creates a lot of relaxation inside. So usually I would go for a walk. Um, I sometimes would go for a walk with my husband. We were in the same co-working space in two different offices. So I could always come and, and grab him. He also had a couch in his office. So sometimes I would go and lay on his couch. <laughs> I'd be like, I'm having a bad day. I need your couch. <laughs> is your husband still an entrepreneur? My husband's still an entrepreneur. He's still running his company. And what is that business? His company is a mobile games advertising company. It's called Game Changer SF. And he's been running it for about eight years. Oh, you froze. Oh, oh sorry. Um, his company is a mobile advertising uh, company. Oh, okay. All right. And was it helpful the fact that you married uh, an entrepreneur as well in terms of having him understand what you were going through and be able to share the experiences? I think so. I think it was really helpful because first of all, he had gone first, right? So I got to see the fact that he was surviving, right? He hadn't collapsed, you know, in the midst of creating a business. My business was slightly different than his, but he was able to understand and support the effort. And he was very excited, you know, for what we were creating and how much traction we were able to, to get. Uh, so it was super helpful to have that, that person in my life. So talk about the concept of the single focus. You talk about that in, your, in the book, about uh, the need to have a single deep focus. Yes, this is actually one of my favorite chapters and one of the ones that's resonating the most with people. This is chapter two. I call it single deep focus. And basically the concept is that your startup thrives on your attention, right? It thrives on your attention like you thrive on air. It's just necessary that you pay attention to it. But it's not this divided attention that it needs to get. It needs to get a number of periods of single deep focus. And single deep focus, I define it in very extreme terms, right? If the object you most desire in your life were to appear in your peripheral vision during a period of deep focus, you wouldn't even see it. You're so engaged with this task at hand that you wouldn't even see what's happening in your peripheral vision. So periods of single deep focus are really important when you're building the vital organs of your company, right? So let's say you have to write uh, an RFP for your software. That's a period of single deep focus or multiple periods. You have to write um, a deck, a presentation to make to a customer. You have to review resumes for a cr critical position. Um, so I really, what I do in the book is I take people through how to create that container that will best promote a period of single deep focus. And part of it starts with beginning to turn off all of the distractions. And there are a lot of distractions, right? There's the, all the beeping things that happen, but then there's also things inside that are happening, right? We're human beings. So we need to be fed and watered and we need to go to the bathroom. So we need to take care of those. We need to take care of the things that are happening in our head, the thoughts that are popping up that say, I don't really want to do it. You know, I can't do it. I'm afraid to do it. It's not going to be perfect. And so it begins with taming all of that and then creating a container where we say for a period of an hour and a half, I am going to focus on this single task and then doing it for that period of time and then ending that period of time because usually at some point within two hours, our attention begins to dwindle and it's better to take a break than to continue working. 
you also talk about another concept, which is best action to take concept. Yes. What is that? Yes. This is related to the fact that a startup benefits from this forward motion, right? It sort of needs to move forward, right? And so every day is important to show up to it. What I would do is I would show up to it and say, what is the best action I can take today, right? And that's the point that a startup generally benefits from action and benefits from forward movement and a way to get to that forward movement, what that forward movement needs to be every day is to ask yourself that question. What is the best action I can take today? Um, and I found that that was a really good way to start each day for me. Of course, there would be like 20 other things that would fly at me and email would go off the rails, but to come into each day with a focus, right? An intention of like, today, the best action that I can take is to contact five more customers, right? To see if they're willing to do a demo, right? Or today, the best action I can take is to uh, work on the user manual for our platform, right? And, and to sort of like be really focused so that each day the business has an opportunity to move forward. You talk about, uh and you have some thoughts on this, owning 100% of a small company as opposed to owning 10% of a large company. Explain why that is, because most people feel like, hey, I'd rather have 10% of this $100 million company than 100% of a $10 million business. Explain your thoughts on this. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, at the end, the choice is yours, right? Maybe you can own 10% of a $100 million company, or, you know, other people would choose to own 100% of a $10 million company. It was very interesting because around that time, I was starting to talk to a couple of other entrepreneurs that had built pretty big companies. And I talked to a person, a friend of mine, who had built a company that had more than $100 million in revenue. And part of what he was saying to me is, you know, I, he, was tell, he was telling me, I remember when this company was a $10 million company in revenue, and I owned all of it. I remember how that felt. And I know where I am now, where I own only 10% of this company. I have a really complex capitalization structure, right? Lots of people are involved in this. There's lots of pressure coming from private equity partners and other partners that have taken a stake in the company. And part of me thinks, you know what? Maybe it was better to own 10%, 100% of a $10 million company. So the thought came in from that direction of talking to somebody who had been through the whole thing. And of course, that was just his opinion. But the, the fact of the matter is that, you know, there is this pressure to make really big companies. And that's fine. Big companies, you know, do a lot. They employ a lot of people. Uh, but they are also much more complex to run. And so for a first-time founder, sometimes it's better to break up the problem or break up the goal. If I tell you, you have to go out and build me a $100 million company in revenue, that seems like pretty ambitious. But if I tell you, you have to build me a $10 million company in revenue, like you might feel like, well, you know what? I think I could probably do that. Um, and so, you know, it's sort of like about breaking up the problem of starting a company and building a company. So it doesn't become something that is so... Um, like atrociously intimidating, right? But at the end of the day, if you own 100% of a $10 million company and you sell it, you get 10 million. And if you sell your $100 million company that it probably took you much longer to build and you had a much complicated strategy, you still get 10 million. True. Is there anything that persuaded you not to take on investors? Like what was, what was your allergic reaction to taking on outside money? 
<laughs> yeah, I talk a lot about that in the book. Um, you know, part of it had to do that this was my first time building a company, right? And so, you know, if I put myself in the shoes of a venture capitalist, I mean, yeah, I had some accolades. I had gone to a nice, you know, MBA and I had worked in corporate America and all these things, but I had never built a company. And so to me, it seemed like convincing them was really not a good use of my time. Instead, I could be convincing my customers, right, to buy the product that I, I was trying to develop. And also, I felt that from an advice perspective, my customers were better advisors to me than an investor could be because my customers were actually the ones that were using the product and were having the problem that I was trying to fix. Um, and so I became, you know, very focused on, you know, customers are the best relationships I could be having instead of having investors. Uh, and then I think there were other things that I was bringing into this VC that were my own things, right? I come from an immigrant family. We, we tend not to borrow money. We tend to make money go a really long way, right? I talk about going to the supermarket, you know, with $40 and using coupons and deals to get $100 worth of food. And to me, it seemed that a lot of companies that got money that got venture funding, they weren't using it like so responsibly. You now go and you get this big office, you know, across from a bridge and, you know, there's free food everywhere. And, you know, instead of having two developers that could do the job, you have 10 developers that could do the same job. And to me, it seemed that little bit irresponsible, right? And of course, this is for my first startup. I say, I end that section very clearly saying, these were my thoughts for this first business, right? you know, if I were to do another business, I'm doing another business now, I may consider going in a different direction, right? But I thought for this particular business, because it was niche, because it was my first business, um, because I didn't really like celebrating taking other people's money, it didn't seem a good route for me to get investor funding. And also I had the customer revenue, right? If I didn't have the customer revenue, then I would be in a different position where I probably had to go get some funding. But then you'd be at a disadvantage because the fact you got the customers, revenues coming in, you're profitable. If you did want to take money, you could dictate the terms. If you're not getting that, uh, maybe you wouldn't get money at all because you couldn't prove out your concept. But the other part is you're at a disadvantage. That's when right, Mark. It com uh, comes to negotiating. And that, Mark, that's a really important point because I also feel that that's a bit of a myth that people think that companies just go out there and raise funds without really having any proof of traction. And it's not really what's happening out there. I am part now of a couple of angel groups. And even in the angel groups, most of the companies need to demonstrate some kind of traction. So they either have revenue, right? Some monthly recurring revenue, or they have some monthly users, right? That are growing. They need to show that. And so it's very few very few companies get funding without having some sort of proof of customers, some sort of proof of initial product market fit. The only companies I can see that get that type of funding are very um, sort of like, let's say a new MRI machine, something like that, where it's not going to be developed unless people fund it or a new drug, right? Like if I was building a new biotech company, then that would be funding. But again, that funding would be supported by some clinical data. Um, right, saying this looks like it would be a promising new treatment. I, I'm, by the way, I'm going to invite you. I have an angel panel in a couple of weeks. So I'm going to ask you if you'll uh, be on that panel and talk about your investing uh, in there and what the angel groups you're seeing are now investing in. So let's talk about hiring. You talk about hiring. Uh, you talk about hiring blank slates. Please tell us the profile of a blank slate. 
Yeah, great question. So I call them blank slates. And I say, at first, hire blank slates. And what I came to realize with my startup is specifically for biotech and doing these social media campaigns and sort of, you know, working on, on this type of activity that was pretty new for the industry, it wasn't really possible for me to hire people that had done the job before, because really there weren't that many people that had done this job before. And so instead, what I decided to hire was what I call blank slates. They're people who are, um, they have a mindset, they have a growth mindset, and they can basically decide that they can learn um, whatever they can learn, right? Whatever is in front of them, they will learn. If they fail, they're gonna get up and keep going. And number three, they're very attached to the mission of the company. And so that was in general what I was looking for. I ended up onboarding uh, a woman who had taken six years off to go raise her twins. I ended up hiring a very, very diverse group of people. Um, and they were all really blank slate. They hadn't quite worked on something like we were working. And part of hiring them was to, you know, I would provide them the training, but they would learn something brand new that was happening in the industry. What's the biggest mistake an entrepreneur can make when hiring? Yeah, I think, honestly, I think the biggest mistake is to overhire. I'd rather give people broader jobs than overhire because a large team comes with a lot of issues, right? Um, and I, I end that chapter talking about the benefits of a small team. A small team, people communicate much better. People have a lot more ownership of the part of the work that they're doing. And then for the startups, financial health, right? The revenue per customer is higher, the revenue per employee profit per employee, all of those are higher. So building a big team, I think is one of the biggest mistakes. And it's one of the mistakes that I see made most often, right? That as soon as a company, especially gets VC funded, they're now going to go and hire a lot, a lot of people. And um, then it becomes, you know, becomes something that is quite unmanageable in my opinion. Uh you use the uh, you use software called Disk when hiring. How effective is using software uh, and using that to analyze personalities and fits and so forth? Yeah, so I, I want to clarify that the disk came into my view after my company was acquired. So immediately after my company was acquired, our acquirer was going through this disk uh, process of you know taking every employee and typing them with the the disk and using. Uh, the disc as a way to help teams collaborate better. Uh, but I have to say, so I didn't use it quite for hiring, but I did use it for analyzing how my team had been hired. And it turned out that we were doing probably what we should be doing, which is finding balancing personalities, right? And so the disc divides people into four types of personalities, uh, two that are more like people focused, more outgoing, and then two that are more sort of data focused and more, um, I guess, conscientious, um, more on the data. Um, and then sort of two dispositions, one that likes a lot of action, and one that likes more thinking. And so the point of the, the team is to build a team that's balanced, right? So for example, if I'm action oriented and people oriented, I also want to have on my team people who are more thoughtful, right? And who are going to take maybe a little bit more time. Uh, what, that seems to maybe create more stress. At the end of the day, it is balancing the team so that we're getting to a good decision. Did you use more consultants or full-time people as part of your team? So how did you use consultants versus hiring full-time people? 
Yeah, great question. So I had four positions that were full-time, and then I had three positions that were consultants. Um, and generally, the consultants were those people where they weren't involved in the business on a daily basis and on a full-time basis, right? So we had case managers that were consultants that worked uh, generally half half of the day. We had software developers that were consultants. And then the rest of the team that interacted with the customers, those were employees, right? So I think for me, that made me feel really, um, really good to have the employees be the ones that were talking to the customers. What was the biggest mistake you made? And, and you talk about this when you were going to sell the business. Talk mm -hmm. about the process of selling the business and what you learned from that process. Because all of the folks who are on here are hoping one day to sell their business. And mm -hmm. a lot of landmines uh, when you're doing this. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what happened in my business was that I got a first offer to acquire the business. It came from a company that was adjacent and they liked what we were doing in clinical trial enrollment. And they said, well, let's buy this instead of building it on our own. Um, and that was the first offer. I was taken a little bit by surprise because I wasn't looking to sell the company. It hadn't really even crossed my mind to start thinking of an exit strategy, even though, you know, now building another business, I would think of that ahead of time. But this was my first time around. So I was thinking about building the company. And then this first company comes, they give me a letter of intent. Um, I go get evaluation. But I think one of the things that I don't do is to say, well, they gave me an offer. Maybe what I should do is get an investment banker and just shop the whole company, right? I didn't do that, right? I, I worked with them through that offer. Uh, thankfully, that deal fell through, right? It didn't happen. And before that deal fell through, I got a second inbound interest, right? Not, not an offer, but a second company saying, we're interested and, you know, we'd like to talk to you. And I got back to them saying, well, I'm under exclusivity with this first company, uh, but I will get back to you if that falls through. So it did fall through, which was good that that happened. I talked to the second company. I didn't get a fuzzy feeling either. And so then I, at this point, I decided to hire a coach. And this was actually a really good move because uh, the coach helped me clarify, do I want to sell this company at this time or should I keep going? Maybe I should keep building it for you know, a longer period of time until it's bigger. And then if I do want to sell the company, then what is an offer that would make me feel good about selling it so I don't have seller's remorse, right? And so we worked through that. Um, now, this was my first time selling a company. So I feel like I actually did a lot of things wrong. But at the end of the day, the story ended up okay. And somehow I was salvaged, <laughs> you know, uh, with the first deal not going through and the second deal, basically me saying, I don't like this deal. And mostly I didn't like it because they wanted to acquire 51% of the company and uh, that didn't make any sense to me. You either kind of buy the whole thing and, or like to me for, to lose control and still own 49% of the company didn't seem right to me. And so when the third party came to acquire the company, now I had worked with the coach and so I could tell this third company what I was looking for. Right? I can give them ranges for valuation. I can give them ranges for how long am I want to stay as an employee. I could tell them how much I wanted in cash. How much, you know, like I could tell them what I was looking for. And then they could tell me whether or not that would fit their, 
you know, their parameters. And so then I got this third offer and we went through due diligence, which is a very, very intense process. That was one of the times that I worked the hardest and I was the closest to really feeling burnt out. Um, but eventually it finished and the transaction closed and uh, I sold the company in September of 2018. Then I stayed on with the acquirer for a year and a half to help them integrate it into their product offering. Fantastic. And you say you stayed a year and a half. A year and a half. Uh, was it a good experience uh, or do you, were you saying to yourself six months into it? Jeez, all right, I'll just finish this out, but I, I want to go back and start something else. I really don't like working for someone. So it was an interesting experience. It was good to see how you integrate a company because I really got to learn about all of the things. You know, we, we had to transfer our financial system over to them. We had to transfer HR to them. So all the back office had to be transferred. The software development had to be transferred. And then we sort of had to rebuild our team based on what they had already started to do. My acquirer has started to form something in this direction and we had to absorb those people and rebuild the team. So overall, I think it was a great management experience. But about, I would say a year and a couple of months into it, I was sort of getting, you know, kind of this feeling of like, you know what, I am really more built for starting companies, for creating something from nothing. I really like that hustle in the beginning. And now I'm working at a big company. And so that's when I decided, okay, it's a year and a half. It's time for me to move on and, and start something else. So I've got a final question for you. What, what books and magazines uh, and podcasts, what, whatever, that you listen to and read uh, that other entrepreneurs you think would benefit by it? it yes. Magazine, I, I love reading books. I read about 50 books a year. So I think startup related, the books that have been most influ influential have been The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. This is a foundational book for startups because it really talks about going to market with a minimum viable product, like not wasting your time building something that might go to the garbage can. So I love that book. Um, I love the book Lost and Founder by Rand Fishkin. This is a book about a venture-backed company and basically some of the control issues that happen there. He's super honest about his journey. Um, I love that book. Uh, Mona Bajor wrote Startups and Downs, and it talks about her journey building also a multi-million dollar company in the B2B space. Those three are great books. Uh, there's an amazing book on burnout called Burnout uh, by the Nagoski sisters, Amelia and Emily. Uh, that's a very good book to read on burnout to really understand how to fix it if you are in that position or getting close to it. Um, and then I have a bunch of books on my website. If you want to look, sandraspielberg.com. I actually put books that I like there uh, to get people started. On podcasts, I honestly, most of the podcasts that I listen to are meditation podcasts. So I listen to Tara Brack and Jack Cornfield. Uh, they do a weekly meditation podcast. And it's usually, it's more of what we call a Dharma talk. Well, they'll talk about something that's going on. Uh, and it's usually very relevant. So, you know, f right now there's a lot of, you know, on racism and discrimination. And it's, I just find them very grounding. Um, and then uh, let's see, I also, um, you know, a couple of other podcasts that I liked as, as I was building Seeker Health is I did like how I built this, uh, the NPR podcast. I would always get a little upset that they were always 
featuring these very large and popular companies. But, you know, once I got past that, it was, it was still nice to hear all these founders that had built these big companies and kind of what they went through in that process. Well, Sandra, thank you so much for being with us today. We wish you the best of luck. We look forward to hearing about your next startup. And uh, we hope people really take advantage and read your book. And if you could share that book one more time, yes. that would be great. The book looks like this, yeah. No Startup Mindset. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. Take care. You too.